We're going to be doing something that's very much in line with sort of what we started out today. I, I thought it was interesting that um, that the ser- this uh, song was very close to the uh, sermon. Um, we're going to talk about Psalm 113. If you have your Bible, we'll be going through the passage uh, portion by portion if you want to run to that. Uh, you know, I have a question for you. You know, if you were going to say, you know, I'd like you to intercede on behalf of another person, would you then have a prayer of confession of your sins? Or if I had a, a desire for a prayer of, uh, um, of salvation, would that be the same as a prayer of intercession for someone? You know, I realize that doesn't make a lot of sense, but the problem is if we don't pay attention to what kind of information that we're uh, uh, given in the scripture will sometimes make some mistakes. And that's what I'm going to do today is talk about something that I have regularly heard incorrectly talked about. Uh, people and their terminology oftentimes confuse what the text is discussing. So we're looking today at the idea of Psalm 113 telling the greatness of Yahweh is commanded of his servants. And so we're going to talk about the idea of praise from Psalm 113. Matter of fact, I found it, found it was interesting that uh, I was, my wife and I, Irina, who's down here, uh, we were at a, a friend of our home and uh, they had a prayer and what they did, everyone says, that the, you know, may his, uh, uh, may his mercy endure forever. And so it was repetitive. And maybe you've heard those kind of songs. It's a hallel. And, uh, but if you, if you mix that up, then you really don't make any sense of the scriptures. So let's, let's look at this a moment. I'm not going to go into any great depth about this discussion here, but you have a Hebrew word that, uh, in which we have the idea of, uh, praise of God. And, uh, you know, you have that very kind of thing done in the days of Jesus. I'm going to pass over some of this and, in view of our time issue. But what I did want to talk about is this last portion uh, right over here. Uh, well, here you have the word Hallel, and then you have the word Ha-Gador, uh, ha which is a fact of the great Hallel, a place of his mercy endures forever. It's a statement of God's character. Would you agree? When we continue to say God's mercy endures forever, that's stating God's character. Or we said God is love. Or whatever we say about God, uh, that's a statement of talking about what kind of deity he is, what God he is, which is different from what he does, it's what he is, his mercy. And so we are going to discuss the question. I'm going to move past this. These are found many times, but I think I'll just start off directly from the passage of Scripture itself. Uh, the text says, Praise the Lord, praise those servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Now, this is in Hebrew an imperative verb, and that's not oftentimes understood. The word praise is a term different from the word thanksgiving. When you praise someone, it's different than giving thanks for someone. And yet I grew up with, and maybe you grew up with, and maybe even today, uh, talk about, well, praise the Lord, as though saying those words had anything to do with accomplishing the task. And I I go oftentimes to certain settings where I hear this a lot, and I'll not mention where, but different kinds of groups that you speak to and are with, and you'll have people saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I would say, okay, do it. Quit talking about it and accomplish it because it's an imperative verb. It's telling people to do something. A command, an imperative, is telling someone to do something. And you could say praise the Lord for the rest of your life and never will have accomplished praising the Lord because saying the words does not accomplish the, the command. And we'll talk more about what, how that fits in here. But the fact is, Psalm 113 is going to make that very plain to you, 
that when we talk about praising God, it's different from talking to God. It's different from confessing before God. It's different from asking intercession from God. It's, you know, it's different from all these kinds of ways in which we talk about God, and sometimes we don't talk about them intelligently. What we want to do is try to accomplish this task to actually praise God. And that's what this psalm's talking about, how to do what God is asking you to do because praise is a term used in Hebrew thought to express two aspects. A very fine scholar years ago wrote a book called The Incomparability of Yahweh. And uh, there's also uh, works in the... We'll talk some about that in just a moment. And you have another book by another man by the name of The Praise of God in the Psalms. And so you you have these studies that have been done, but what you find out is that when you talk about God in praise, two issues are being addressed. One, you can praise God by talking about his character, his nature. What kind of being is he? That's talking about God, explaining who he is. The second thing, it's actually praise is to not speak of his character, but of his deeds, his works, how he works in your life or someone else's life, what God has done. So his character and his works or deeds. So these are the two discussions that praise relates to. All praise will relate either to God's character or to God's works. Now, I grew up in a, uh, a particular denomination of a, of a sort that uh, used to have what they called testimony services. Has anybody ever been in a testimony service? Do you have those here regularly? No? Okay. But I grew up with testimony services. Now, sometimes it got a really foolish. Even when I was in this group as a young man, um, it was a Pentecostal church. I'll just put it that way. As a young man, I would listen to people, and I thought, you've said that the last five times or ten times I've been here. The exact same statement. I want to thank the Lord for this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And that was a testimony. But they repeated as fast as they could and repetitive as they could from service to service to service. If they had said it once and stayed quiet for a few months, that would have been great. But you had some people getting up and doing repetitive statements, very quick stuff. It was redundant, and it was not really thought through, and it really didn't accomplish much. Plus, it wasn't necessarily praise. It depends on what was being said. Uh, but I did hear people get up and do what they called testimony, and the testimony was genuinely following. I'm sure they didn't understand it but genuinely followed biblical praise because they said, I want to tell you what God's been doing in my life this week and what he's done this for me and this for me and this for me, or he's answered this prayer, he's done these, you know. It's talking about God and what he did. And that was a genuine praise, even though they called it testimony, Okay. Because you're going to find out that testimony and praise essentially is the same thing. Praise, as we're going to find out in this passage, is in our colloquial way of speaking, bragging on God. Now you can imagine, uh, you know, you're just, uh, you know, you've been uh, maybe dating or engaged and just married or whatever, and you start bragging on your spouse and what that would include certain things about how they maybe look or maybe how they act, and that would be called praise or testifying, as it were. Quite different. So you look at the passage. I want to point out something I have here because I'm going to run through. Now, if you want to read some more on this, those of you who have my uh, my House Visual Study Bible that some of you have now, uh if you go on that to Exodus 3, 14, and 15, I have a lengthy discussion on this, but I'm not going to do that much today. 
The name Yahweh. Let's talk about it. Uh, the word Yahweh is, in fact, based on four Hebrew consonants because in the Hebrew text, as it was originally, they knew how to say the vowels and they had only the consonants written. If you go to a the state of Israel today, you pick up your newspaper and you start reading it in Hebrew, almost all the words will be without vowels, even today, because they picked up and used... By, uh, there's a great story, and if you want to read a great book of what happened to bring the Hebrew language back to the Jewish people who had been separated from that land for so long all throughout the world, and the Hebrew they speak in Israel today is virtually the same as the Hebrew of the Bible. There's a little few variations based on certain things that have happened today. They've added a participle in here or there and so forth. But generally speaking, it's the same. Ever so often, though, you'll see some dots or, or, or dashes. The reason for that is that's a new word that nobody has learned, used enough that they would know how to pronounce it. So they put in some vowels, they put vowels in, but very few of them. Okay, that's how they work. So yod hey wah H-Y-H-W-H, is in fact the name of God in the Hebrew Bible. And that's the reason I have it here is because we have substituted, just like we've substituted sometimes uh some other form of prayer for praise, we sometimes substitute the name of God for something that's not the name of God. And that's a problem. It's something that just has to be learned. And we are repetitive in how we do sometimes as Christians. We create theology out of habit. Get that theology out of our habit, not out of the text. And so the fact is, the word Lord is actually based on another Hebrew word. The other Hebrew word is the word Adonai. And you don't have to memorize any of this stuff. I'm just talking, and, and if you want to write it down, you can. But it's Adonai. It's another word altogether. And it means one who's a master, a lord, a lord, you know, like the lords of, of, uh, of England or something. You know, it's that kind of idea, someone who's in charge, a master. And that's the word we use repeatedly, but usually when it comes across the name of God, people put in L-O-R-D. And that's been going on a long time. And there are reasons for it that we will not take the time to discuss. But that's how it developed. So what we're looking at is in the biblical text today is this statement about praising the Lord, as we say. But I want to suggest to you that part of the whole concept of praise is to understand who God is and what we call him. Now, that does not mean that that's the only thing God can be called because you'll find in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll have a statement about Adonai. You'll have Lord. Or you'll find another word for God. We, it comes to the Greek, excuse me, the Hebrew word Elohim or Eloah. Not, not, that's not uh, Hawaiian. It's Eloah, E L O A H. And so you have all these words behind the scenes, and we've adapted ourselves to them. But I'm wanting to talk about praising God. And I'd like to sort of talk about it in a way in which the psalmist did it. Wouldn't it be great to just get back into the, into the thinking of the psalmist himself and not just something else that we come up with? There's another word that's oftentimes used, and I, I, I was in church, I think, last week or the week before, and I didn't even feel like singing because they kept singing this word repetitively uh, again and again and again, and it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Now, here it is. What if a person came up to you and said, uh, let's say your name is Frank, and they said, Jim, how's it going? And you said, no, 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 my name is Frank. Okay, Jim, I understand, but uh, what's happening in your life, Jim? How would you think about that? What would that mean? is that if you actually have a name and they are not willing to call you by your name but something else, say, well, listen, that's the word I've used always. I've always used Jim with you. I talk to you. But I talk to people about you, and I call you Jim, and to your face I call you Jim. But, hey, it doesn't matter. You know, just, just accept what I say. Well, we'd sort of like use someone use our name, right? Is that correct or not? Don't you like your name used? I don't know what, you know, I, I have to have Wayne come to dinner. You know, how would I know if she's talking about maybe somebody else visiting? <laughs> right? 
The fact is you want your name, it has purpose. It identifies you. It says something about you. Now, I can tell you Wayne is not a luxury. There are some great names. There are some great names, like Rachel, you know, Lamb of God. I mean, how do you get better than that? You know, you have some words that mean some pretty good. My, my wife, she didn't understand this until we got married. I don't believe. But that the word Irina, which was actually from Greek into Russian, the word Irina uh, is from a Greek word, which means peace, from Irini. means peace. So all of a sudden, her name took on some more significance to her. The idea of, oh, peace, that's a good name. My name, Wayne, unfortunately means, I think, wagon maker or something like that. Something really significant, you know, like Nathaniel, you know, <laughs> or something, or Joshua. No, it doesn't mean a lot. But uh, I do have a name my mother gave me that I've never really used, but it's my first name, and most people don't know it. If you look at my books and articles, it says H. Wayne House. The reason why I've never used the name Herschel. For my whole life, I think it's because when I was a kid in grade school, some of the poor students, my colleagues in the classroom, after the teacher probably had called out my name, started calling me Hershey Bar, the chocolate-covered nut. And that just didn't appeal to me as a designation. I think I went to Wayne as a wagon maker, which makes more, you know. But actually the word Herschel, and he is from Hebrew, I found out years later. And it means a gazelle, a beautiful animal. That's a nice that's a nice word. But I've used Wayne for too long. <laughs> and so I still have H. Wayne. So names can be important. I'm saying I think God's name may be important. I mean, since we know what it is, we might all have learned it. Now, the word for God's name, we're going to find in a moment, is Y-H-W-H in the consonants. But Hebrew has, it's called a, E-class vowel, it's an A-E form. That's why you have Yahweh. Use the consonants and fill in the vowels. It's a normal. A man, and we're not sure exactly if this is the first person, but way back in the 16th century, early 16th century or late 15th century, a man came up with taking the words, the, the letters Y-H-W-H and used a German form, which is probably where it came from, a German form, because in German, a J is pronounced as a Y. And they don't have a W, they have a V. And so they, he came up with the word called Jehovah. Jehovah. Now, that name had never existed in the history of the universe until that period of time. Nobody ever thought about calling God Jehovah. That's a made-up word. And you wouldn't like me to make up your name, would you? I could, I could spell it lots of ways, I suppose, and call you different names. But, you know, the name is clear in the text. I'm going to read you something here in just a moment you'll find interesting. But I'm sort of saying all of this because it's important because we're going to come to the concept of praise. Who are we praising? Jim or Wayne or whatever, you know, Jim or Frank. Now, the text says, praise Yahweh. Praise, O servants of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. So the meaning of the Hebrew word here, we have here, is hallelujah. Notice it's never hallelujah. Hallelujah, because at least they got that right. Hallelujah, because Yah is a short form of Yahweh that's used. Matter of fact, we have a word called Yehoshua, and that is also a shortened form of Yahweh, which is combined with the Hebrew word for salvation, and we have the word Yehoshua, and Shua Yaho is your form, short form, and Shua is a word for salvation. And guess what that means? Yahweh is salvation. That's also the name of Jesus. 
Yeshua is the word where we get the English form, which isn't real close. Again, I, if you go to my uh, study Bible again and you go to this word study on Jesus, it, it explains it. The fact is that Jesus actually is an English form that came from the word Yeshua in Hebrew. Through the Greek, <laughs> through the Greek, Hebrew to Greek to English, and that's where we got it. So uh, give praise to Yahweh. Now, the command of praise is given to servants, and that means us. One thing that's interesting in the work of God and, and being all believers is the fact that we are all servants of God. We sometimes feel that we have an exalted position, maybe over somebody else sometimes. So we have the words, for example, uh, we have the a situation where we have managers over other people or, or people that are servants. But you know what? David even said he'd rather, rather than being king, that he'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. That is, being a servant of God is more significant than being a president. Now, I know we aspire for things like this sometimes. At one time, I thought about moving into politics pretty heavy, and I started getting involved a lot and doing some things. I won't go any more than that. But, but you know, that might have been interesting and fun. But it's never as good as being a servant of God. Uh, we have to understand our position in reference to God because if we don't, we may think that sometimes we are God or we know more than God. And that's a problem. A servant follows what the master teaches. Now, the proper name of God, I've already said some things about that and I've given you the word Elohim here in the, in, in the left. Uh, in Hebrew, that's the word for God. It means one who is a mighty one, a mighty one. Or sometimes it means someone in certain, the word in Hebrew, I won't go into all the discussion on it, but the word in Hebrew can sometimes mean the idea of mighty, but other times it's used of one who is sufficient, one who provides. So both terms are used uh, of, of the idea of Elohim. And that's the word, uh, you have the word Adonai, which means master, and that's used a lot of times for God. And when you see Lord, L-O-R-D, in small letters in your English Bible, Lord is almost from Adonai, and that's the word. Okay? But then you have this word, yod Hey wah Hey, and I put it here in the Hebrew to the left. And you don't have to read that. I'm just telling you what it is. Now, it's consistently translated L-O-R-D. By the way, there are a few translations that vary now. Uh, if you look at the translation used again in my study Bible, I'm using there the World English Bible, which I found to be quite good. Quite good. And every instance in the Old Testament is correct on this. And they chose to go that way. And there was another one called the Christian Standard Bible out of Broadman Holman, Southern Baptist Publishers, that for years had basically begun to translate over back into the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. The Jerusalem Bible that comes out of France also brought the name of God in. So some have done it. But uh, we're going to read here about anybody use a New American Standard. I like the New American Standard translation. I really do. I, I like the, uh, uh, new, uh, the uh, New American Standard. I think, am I saying the right thing? I think I'm trying, I may have that wrong. But anyway, the NASB. Okay. So the NASB, I like it. I like Christian standards pretty well. I like the, uh, the, uh, New King James pretty well. Uh, I don't use a nearly inspired version much, but, uh, a lot of people like the NIV. But nonetheless, uh, there are some translations that are really a bit closer to trying to translate what's there instead of bringing the interpretation of the translator. Uh, I prefer to stay closer to the text than with the translator's ideas about the text. And so theology tends to come in more in the dynamic form of translation. Now, this is something that is found in the preface of the NASB, New American Standard Bible. This is, should be in quotations probably. 
Therefore, it has been consistently translated Lord. The only exception to this translation of YHWH is when it occurs in immediate proximity to the word Lord, that is Adonai. In that case, it's regularly translated G-O-D in order to avoid confusion. It is known for many years that YHWH has been transliterated as Yahweh. However, no complete certainty attaches to this pronunciation. Now, I'm going to agree with them on that. No absolute, complete certainty attaches to the pronunciation of this name or hardly any other or to any other thing in biblical research. The word complete certainty is a hard, tough statement. It's absolute. I know for certain and quit talking about it. I got it down. Complete certainty is very difficult in any topic. So to say that no complete certainty attaches to it is not the same thing as it's not right. Because quite honestly, scholars have for years known how this should be pronounced. NASB says that the proper name of God is most significant. If you look at their introduction in this version, it's most significant. It's inconceivable to think of spiritual matters without a proper designation for the supreme deity. However, they and other translations, except for some I mentioned, have chosen to omit the name because they say no complete certainty attaches to it. Well, I don't care what name you're talking about in the Bible. I could probably argue something similar. Elohim means powerful. Adonai means master. El Shaddai means God Almighty. All sorts of variations. I am, in fact, a husband, a father, a professor. Those are things that I do. Those are designations regarding me and identifying me. But none of those are my name, Wayne. Do you understand me? So you can have terms like Lord or God, or Almighty, or whatever, and those are fine to use, and they are in the text. But they are designations about the person as to deeds, what they do, and so forth. It's never the name called the proper name. I have a proper name. You have a proper name. My name is Wayne. Last name is House. That's my proper name. But that's different from calling me Professor or honey, or something of the sort that we use. Does that make sense to you? Difference. Now, you find the word Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew, or Yahweh, you find it about 5,000 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. It may be they thought it was important. Are you with me? If they used it so much, you would think they thought it was significant. If I find something used 5,000 times, I would say, hmm, I need to know more about that because it's so used. The most important mention is in Exodus 3.15. God further said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel... Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And then here's God's words. These are interesting words. These are direct statements from God. Pay attention, servants. This is my name for a while. I read that wrong? This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, I've always thought that's interesting that God would actually take upon himself to say, I'm making something very, very clear to you. This is my name forever and my name to be remembered by for all generations, my memorial. And yet we say, who cares? Now, by the way, I'm not up here teaching for the purpose of trying to get everybody to walk around saying Yahweh. I'm not saying that because God has different names, and they are used too. Elohim's used a lot. Adonai's used a lot. Almighty, God Almighty, El Shaddai is used a lot. You have a lot of names used, and so you we use all of these names. All I'm trying to say is that when you get to reading the Bible and understanding the Hebrew text, you understand the history, and every scholar in the world basically knows this and uses it. But somehow it's never leaked down into the laity. And you know why? 
I can tell you the reason why, because I've read it. There's a concern that if we say something like this, we'll lose people purchasing our Bible because it will seem odd to them, and so they won't be buying it. So it's all about making money, selling books. It has nothing to do with the facts. It has a lot to do with people wanting to do better and have my translation sell more versions. So uh, that doesn't seem to be a, be, be a good motivator for my thinking. Uh, so, in our common state, hallelujah, yeah, we get there close because hallelujah is the word for give praise. It's an imperative verb in Hebrew. Yah is, guess who you give praise to? Yah. Huh, Yahweh. So the way at the end is based on the A-E pattern in Hebrew, although there's no absolute certainty. I had a professor of Hebrew, actually it was a class I took uh, years ago on ancient Eastern, uh, what they call uh, Punic Moabite Phoenician I studied. And this it was a Jewish professor. And he said, I think it ought to be Yahweh. Well, that's fine, but that's not a normal pattern. <laughs> and I didn't give much credence to what he was saying because almost everybody else disagreed. But I, I think that's what we have. Now, so... If we have that straight in our, our minds, then when we say this, you'll, you'll permit me, I think, to go ahead and say what the text says. The text says that we are to give praise to the name of Yahweh. The name stands for his character. By the way, this is a statement in the Hebrew in Exodus 3 when Moses talked to, to God. God said, I am who I am. Now, none of us as servants of God, none of us can say, well, I am, because you're not. (laughs) You with me? I am who I am. God was stating to Moses something very important to know as he goes back to Pharaoh. The I am has sent him. I am who I am talks about the fact that God is a self-existent one. He just not is. He is because he is. He's the self-existent one. Uh, Nothing else in the universe is self-existent. God is the first cause of all reality. Everything you can imagine, it starts at a starting point that there's nothing before it. Do you realize that? The universe as we know it, everything that exists in the material universe throughout the, just think of all the planets and the astro, you know, the uh, asteroids and and the galaxies and and everything that exists and all of that, all those things came out of a self-existent being who is the first cause. Okay, that's important in theology to get that straight. Evolutionists have difficulty with this. Because they want creation to create itself. You know what? Creation can't do anything. It's not a causal agent. It's the thing that's created. <laughs> so it can't create something. <laughs> Only someone that's self-existent can create. And that's God. And so we have this statement here about God's character. I am who I am. And then he says to Moses... You go to Pharaoh and you say to him, now, it wouldn't make any sense for Moses to go in and stand before Pharaoh and said, I am who I am. Because he's not. <laughs> Only one person can say that. That's why it's so significant in John eight fifty eight, When Jesus speaks before the Jews and he says, before Abraham became, because became means Abraham started. He had, a, he had a cause that created him. He's a result of something. Before Abraham became, I myself am. Very significant statement. Matter of fact, if you look in the Greek Old Testament, the translation of the Hebrew actually says the exact identical Greek structure that you find in John eight fifty eight. So Jesus is the I am. Why is he the I am? Because he's the eternal God. 
And so we have this idea, give praise to the character of God. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. For the name stands for the character of something. That's why if you look at Jacob or you look at Joseph or you look at Moses or look at all these names, these names came about because of trying to express something about what kind of being, what kind of human, what kind of person is that person so that they define their their character in their name. You understand that? that? When you see all these names in the Old Testament, these are stating usually characteristics, how the person is. Like Jacob had a great name to start with, right? Thief. That's the word. That's what it meant. A thief. <laughs> and he got a better name later. He was called Israel. He changed his name because he changed his character. He ceased to be the guy who was surplanting or trying to take advantage of everybody to someone who became someone who struggled with God and changed his life. Names have meaning. Moses has a meaning because he was put in a little basket. (laughs) And we know the story. Character and name relate to each other. So we give praise to the name of Yahweh defining his character. What is God like? One thing I know immediately in the name of the name, Yahweh, I am who I am. That is, he's a self-existent one before whom is nothing. Now, the text goes on to say something about how long Yahweh is to be praised. And the text says, from this time forth and forevermore. Get used to it, folks. Get used to it. Because in heaven, you'll also be declaring the the praise of God. You'll be finding his character. Now, you don't do that by just saying, you know, you're not going to be in heaven. And I know a lot of people probably in the setting that I came from historically probably think they're going to be in heaven. They're going to be saying, praise God, praise God, praise God. No, they're not because that doesn't do anything. What they're going to be doing is talk about him. I always say, remember, praise is, in a colloquial sense, means to brag about somebody. To praise them is to brag about them, talk about them, explain about them. What do they do? Who are they? What are they like? You understand me? That's praise. So I never want to hear somebody say, well, praise God, because that means somebody needs to do it. They need to say something about God and who he is and what he does. But that's why this is done in the assembly. You catch this? You cannot. You can go into your prayer, prayer closet, shut the door, turn out the light, And you can pray an intercessory prayer. (laughs) You can actually have a thanksgiving prayer, thanking God, talking to him directly. You can have a prayer of confession. Well, you can do all these things, but you know what you can never do in your prayer closet? You can never, ever praise God. Why? Because you don't talk to yourself about what God does. You talk to other people. That's why it's an imperative verb to do it. Remember? Hallelujah means give praise, an imperative verb, command God or Yahweh. See what I'm saying? So you need some other people around to accomplish the concept of praise. Uh, you know, in the days of uh, Joshua and, and afterwards, they had a uh, antiphonal uh, uh, psalm comes out of it, where I mentioned it earlier in the sermon that one group of Israelites stood on one hill, Mount Ebal, and the other stood on Mount Gerizim, and they yelled back and forth things about God. They had a praise service. One person here would yell out something about God and how he is. The other group would yell about God and how he is. They went back and forth and back and forth and back. You see that in the Bible somewhere? That actually occurred. Okay. And so I think it's in numbers, isn't it? Seems like it is, but you you can correct me on that. But the point of it is that was a praise service. And if we had a time here, we said, I want to just let's just have a time that we talk about the ways in which God has met our needs. I've been in churches that do that. Years ago, there was a, a, a started in Palo Alto, I think, with. Um, 
oh boy, I can't think of the person's name right now who had a church there, but they sort of started this, and I, the church we were at in Longview, Texas at that time did that. Where actually, it took time for people to stand up and say, let me tell you what God is doing. And that's encouraging to hear that God is actually active in people's lives. Because we just forget about that sometimes. We're just struggling on our own to make it. Doing everything we can to make the right decisions. We're acting as if there is no God. (laughs) Because we're sufficient. We can just do it ourselves. Whereas we take time together and talk about it and talk about how God is working and acting. And why can he do that? Because of what he is. You can talk about what kind of God do we serve as servants? Well, the thing says there's no limitation of time. You can talk about the present or you can talk about what? There's no ending. It's either now or forever. You're to praise God. The subject of the praise is obviously there in verses 1 and 2. It's Yahweh, the name, the character. Um, I, I know I realize what I'm doing. I'm pushing the wrong button the wrong way. Okay. There we go. Now, where can you praise God? Well, I can't praise God, as I said, walking down the street by myself for a night walk. I need somebody else there to do praise, although I can talk to God, which is different. From the rising of the sun to its going down, Yahweh's name is to be praised. Sometimes people have thought of that as a time, you know, when you read the passage, it's talking about when, anytime, you know. It's not discussing time. They've already discussed time, now and forever. You can't go back in the past and do it. (laughs) You're not there. God is, but you're not. (laughs) But the fact is, in time present, forevermore you can praise. You with me? As far as this passage, the rising of the sun and and where the sun goes down and comes up are not statements of time that we sometimes keep... Oh, it's almost this time. No, no, it's talking about location. Because if you look, especially in these days, and of course they didn't understand how big the earth was and a lot of things, but they did understand that you had a sun rises in the morning and it goes down in the evening. Have you ever noticed that happens repeatedly? And they had that worked out. For as far as I can look this way, as far as I can look this way, God can be praised. And that becomes important because the gods of the nations, they often were restricted to locations. The god was over this city. For example, Ephesus had the goddess Aphrodite, or sometimes called, uh, excuse me, I'm I'm getting that mixed up. Not Aphrodite. Uh, Oh, I know, it was Diana. Yeah, Diana. That the god of the hunt and also the one who provides uh, benefit and nourishment to her people. That was the goddess of the city. Uh, Corinth, where they had a little problem with uh, revelations and tongue speaking, they actually worshipped the god Apollo, the god of wisdom and interpretation. And the oracle at Delphi, just down the road from there, about 20 miles, was a place that you had the oracle set up to give revelations and prophetic understandings. So you can understand what's going on at Corinth has a little bit to do with their pagan viewpoints based on the god they worship, Apollo. And we could go on. You know, you know, Athens is based on the god Athena, wisdom, and that's where you had the philosophers and Paul in Acts 17. So knowing who the local god was helps to understand a little bit. All right? But our god is not a localized god. See, our god is from... This way and this way forever. (laughs) He's not restricted to what we think of as a city. He's a God of the entire earth. And so all the shores of the nations, notice this statement. Yahweh will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. Think of what that says in Zephaniah. 
Whereas these other gods are restricted. You know, my God's bigger than your God. You know, uh, you get out there and pray for your God to give us strength over the other God. God is over everything. And by the way, uh, Sennacherib found that out when he came against the city of Jerusalem. He came with hundreds of thousands of soldiers to destroy. He had already taken over all the places in the, in the country, everything. They'd already conquered the north. They came down to the south. They went to finally Lachish, which is, in fact, the second largest city in the time. And then he came to Jerusalem and says, nobody's been able to defeat us. We're in charge. And Hezekiah got everything right with God, and God came out, knocked out 200,000 soldiers in one night. Hezekiah got up the next, excuse me, Sennacherib got up the next morning, getting ready to have his battles, and there's nobody to fight with him. <laughs> he said, take a slingshot and hit against the wall. I don't know. The fact is, he, he what he did is he packed, seriously, this is what happened. You read it in the, in the, in the annals of Sennacherib in the, uh, in the temple they found in, in Assyria. And he talked about that he, he caged up Hezekiah in a cage like a bird. Then he went home. He came there to conquer the city, not to put him like in a cage. He just didn't happen to mention in his statements of glorifying himself that he lost his army and had nothing else to do but go home. He didn't happen to mention that. But the biblical text gives us a fill-in. The fact is, Everywhere, every time is a good time for God to be praised before the people. From the rising of the sun in every place, incense shall be offered in my name. Now, it becomes important in studying this psalm, Psalm 113. The statement says, Yahweh is high. Yahweh is... There it is. I've got to quit playing with that. Uh, Yahweh is high above all the nations, his glory among the, above the heavens. He's high over all the nations. He reigns over all nations. He stands above the universe itself. By the way, have you ever taken time to read Solomon's uh, prayer uh, when he had finished building this, the temple? Remember, David wanted to build it, could not build it. Solomon built it, built a beautiful temple, the marvel of the world. And at that juncture, he had his head screwed on straight. Didn't retain that his whole life, but he did at this point. And he says, God, I realize that what I've done, as much as it is, is nothing in comparison. He says, because heaven is your throne and earth is your footstools. And he said, and and sort of just recognize this pitiful thing that I've offered basically to you. I've, it's not the grandest thing people talk about. It's my... It's such a limited thing of what I wish I could offer to you. He really had his head screwed on straight. And he said that, you know, but what I ask is not take glory in this, but what I ask is that when people pray to this, toward this temple, that you hear and answer prayer. And, of course, he's thinking of that's where the mercy seat was, and the Holy of Holies, and God was there in the temple. Now, that doesn't mean God wasn't everywhere because Solomon's already said, your throne is heaven. <laughs> so he recognized he's all over. But he's, God was functioning in a very specific way with the temple. He says, so when they pray toward this, answer prayer. Solomon really had a great prayer that, that, that could be prayed and how we should think about God. His glory is above all the heavens. So, we come to the issue of the incomparability of God in verse 5. Who is, in fact, like Yahweh our God? Now, I don't know if you've taken time to study the gods of the ancient Near East or the gods of Greco-Rome or any of those things. Uh, there are interesting viewpoints about how the gods are or how they came about. Some of these gods were so... They were worse than humans <laughs> in the way they acted. And and uh, you think these are gods that you'd want to worship because they they really were selfish, pitiful beings as they were discussed in the literature. Okay, spite, jealousy, you name it, they were involved in it, and they didn't deserve it. But nonetheless, the point of it is, 
When you compare any of the gods of the ancient world to Yahweh, the God of Israel, none even get close in comparison. You see, God is represented in a totally different way because the gods of the of, of the Greco-Roman world and all the others, they came, they came out of creation itself. Do you realize that the Babylonian gods, the Persian gods, the Assyrian gods, all these gods... They actually came out of creation. They were not what created, but they had some kind of, they couldn't figure out what it was, but it was called a primordial mass, this original mass of something from which the gods emerged. They were creatures themselves, quite different from the God of Israel. When you realize that, how, how could you have one little group of people in the entire ancient Near East, let's forget about Greco-Rome, in the ancient Near East, all these countries and their gods, how is it that a little bitty old country that really didn't have that much power or strength in comparison to the great might of Persia or Babylon or something had a god that was so unique and different from the gods of the nations? Why didn't they have these false inept deities. They had an unusual concept. Matter of fact, what you found by the time of the New Testament is that many of the Greeks and Romans and others begin to become proselytes to Judaism. Why? Because the concept of deity in Israel was so superior to what was observed in the nations around. That, but that wasn't because the Israelites were smarter than everybody else. It was based on the revelation of God. We would not know God except he reveals himself to us. Who is like Yahweh our God who dwells on high? <clears throat> now, there is no one like God. If you look at the attributes of God, there is a tendency... <clears throat> at times that people who study the Bible even really get things goofed up. Uh, several years ago, a, uh, uh, a group of individuals within the evangelical world, and I was heavily involved at that time with what is called the Evangelical Theological Society. I used to be the president of the group. It represents all the evangelical professors coming, you know, several thousand every year together to study and and do things, and I, I, what what came into the group from outside uh, in the world was a view of what was called the openness of God. That is, that God was still trying to learn. God didn't know everything; He was still learning. Uh, God was not all wise. Sometimes He made mistakes. Uh, God was uh, a being who was. Uh, uh, not really eternal, but more like uh, uh, doesn't seem to, they would sort of argue timeless, but but not quite the idea of the eternally existent God. Uh, and uh, a person by the name of Norm Geisler, I don't know if you know that name, but Norm Geisler and I wrote a book on it called The Battle for God. And we sort of, you know, you had a pastor in a church in Minneapolis, St. Paul, who wrote a book called The God of the Possible. And in that book, he wrote about how he ended up becoming into the open theism view. A woman came to him of the church that he pastored and said to him that she was really mad at God. Okay? And why? Well, because God told me to marry my husband. He was going to go into the ministry, he said, and all these wonderful things, and now he's with another woman, and he's left me, and, and she's mad at God that he told her to marry him. Now, my f- response to her would be, who said that God told you to marry him? Well, I mean, where'd you come up with this idea? And you write it on a piece of paper and deliver it by an angel or something? Where'd you get this idea? People blame God for a lot of the things they're thinking in their head that are screwy. And he said to her, here's his counsel. Here's a pastor. He also taught at a place called Bethel College. 
His response to her was this. Don't be mad at God. He didn't know that your husband was going to do that. And thus came the beginning of open theism among evangelicals that a lot of people adopted. God just didn't know. Don't blame him. He's a fallible deity. Everybody makes mistakes, even God. I'm not into that view. The fact is that we look at the God of the Bible. He is above us in every respect. He is infinite. He's all-powerful. There's no limitation Whatever you come up with, God can do it and more. That's the God of the Bible. And when you see this occurring in the Old Testament, that's the God we're worshiping. And let me tell you something. Someone who has all powerful, all knowledge, all beneficence, all love, all this and all that is a God that deserves to be bragged on. May I suggest? We ought to be telling some people about our God. He's not the God, the Buddhist God. I did a book on world religions. I assure you, having read them all, (laughs) there is no religious group in the world today outside Christianity, and and in generally speaking, Judaism is because of the connection. But essentially all the major religions of the world, they are are really outside Christianity or are really off because their views of God are really warped, sort of like the open theism view. See... O Lord Yahweh, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? Other statements, I'm not going to read all of this, but whom will you like in God? You really can't compare God to anybody. Anything you say is too little. (laughs) Because when you're infinite, whatever you say is never, 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 never enough. Here's, here's an idea. When you talk about God's character, and that's what we're doing, talking about bragging and talking about God, his character and his deeds. When you talk about God's character, we think of him as big and mighty and powerful, and that's all true. But he's also someone, a God who actually humbles himself. Now, you won't find that in our stardom of America or in politicians or whatever. When they can come up with anything about themselves that make themselves look better, they want to use it. They'll even create reality out of nothing to try to get attention and be on the page in the writings or whatever it may be. But even though God is all these wonderful things that we've talked about, our God actually has humility. Now, you don't think of humility as something that connects to greatness or power. But it says he humbles himself to behold the things that are on heaven and earth. I want you to catch what that's saying. God is so expansive, and I don't mean he's like air, but he's everywhere. He's not a thing. He's not a material thing like air or something. But God is there and here and every other place simultaneously. Without You can't work on that. You'll never figure it out. I can't. I worked on it for years. The point is God is everywhere. He's there and he's here simultaneously and everywhere else. So he has to, to this author, when he's writing this, he says God has to reach down like, like somebody just you know, coming down and looking deeper, deeper, deeper into the earth to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. He humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. God is so powerful, so great, he actually is above even what we think of as the heavens. Not to mention the earth. So even though he's above the heavens, he cares for the most deprived among us. Notice the statement. He raises the poor out of the dust. When's the last time you received a check from Bill Gates? They tend, no matter how many billions that you make, they want to keep every dollar. Or whatever they give, make sure they can get money back from it or get prestige from it. See? But God humbles himself to help those that are poor and lifts the needy out of that 
ash heap. Who raises the poor from the dust? Who raises the poor from the dung heap? Who raises the poor? It's God because he actually looks down. He lifts the beggar. And look what he does. He doesn't just lift, simply lift people up. I don't know if you feel this way. I, had, I don't have this experience, okay? I was reared in a Christian home. My mother and dad loved the Lord. I went to church. I grew up that way. Uh, there's a lot of things that are not in my experience growing up that some people have had. There have been people who have had terrible things in their life, abusive parents or drugs and all sorts of things. I mean, and I haven't had that experience in my life. But what they're painting is that if God is willing, obviously, to reach down to help the poorest of the poor, the most depraved of the depraved, he's willing to come down to the dredges of the earth and help the individuals, uh, that reveals something about a character. That's why we have the fact for God so loved the wonderful, thankful, worshipful world. Is that what we see in John 3.16? God loved all these wonderful people. And because of it, he's going to save and send his son. Now the point is, he comes down to save because he's this kind of God. Do you realize that God doesn't have to save a single person and he'll be fine? Read the end of Romans chapter 11 sometimes. That will really get you. It's not a very... It sort of finalizes everything Paul's been saying in Romans 9, 10, 11. He said, Who has given to God that God should repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. God has not a single need. He's all sufficient. He doesn't need us. We need him. And because of the kind of God he is, he who does not need us wants to have relationship with us. And we have a, outside of our uh, my study at, in back in Navasota, a couple of bird things out. You know, for, for one for hummingbird and one for uh, uh, I don't know what other kind of bird he never shows his face, but I know he's in there. I see him. But uh, the fact is, we have these two things, and it, and I sort of do that because I like that statement of Jesus. When he talks that God takes care of the lilies of the field, he says he also takes care of the birds of the air. And he says, are you of not more worth than the sparrow? And yet God takes care of them. He provides for them. And so I'm thinking, that's the kind of God we have. Now, surely a God like this deserves to be bragged on. When's the last time you bragged to anybody about God? So let me tell you something about the God of the Bible and the God of the Bible who is working in my life. And let me tell you some things that are happening. That to me would be worthwhile. And that's what the psalmist is trying to say. This is Hannah's song. You maybe have heard of Hannah before and Samuel and some people like that. But the point is, that, listen to it. And Samuel says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. That's what God does with us. Mary has a similar kind of idea. Notice her statement. You ever read Mary's? This woman was really connected to the Lord and has a good understanding of Bible. Her statement is, you can read the whole thing, it's really amazing, but this one little statement, he has put down the mighty from their thrones. A lot of people think they're tough and mean and nasty and great, God has lowered those people a time and again. God resists the proud and gives grace to the lowly. So, so he says he's pulled down the mighty from the thrones. You know, ask King Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> and exalted the lowly. Now, there's so many other passages which say is the same thing about the exaltation. But here's one of the greatest in this passage of Psalm 113. In the Israelite culture, matter of fact, in the entire ancient Near Eastern culture, one of the most pitiful 
situations is a woman who was barren and not able to have children. And that, now today you have people wanting to get rid of children. I won't go into that story. I'll be talking a lot. I have, I'm not very much in favor of what a lot of people are trying. <laughs> but who apparently don't want children and they don't want anybody else to either. But the point of it is to be in the ancient Near East as a woman without children was a very pitiful situation. And what the writer here does, something very interesting. Uh, the fact is, he said, he will take this woman that is pitiful, who is barren, and will make her the mother of many children. In other words, there's going to be diapers all over the house, kids roaming in and out. He's going to take a woman who is viewed as lowly in the society and pitiful in the society because of the barrenness, and he's going to make her the mother of many children. Now, that is a joyous situation in the ancient Near East, and I hope even maybe, maybe in your life, to the children. And so that's how God is, and we sort of end this passage with praise Yahweh. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not asking you to go around all day long and say Yahweh. I just want you to understand that when you read the Bible, this is what we're talking about, the God who is forever, eternal, existent. That's the God of the Bible. And we found out something about his character, and these are the things we're to do in praise. Please don't say praise God. You can, say, you can talk to God yourself if you would like and say, Lord, I want to thank you. Give thanksgiving. But if you're going to praise God, you need to talk to other people and explain who he is and what he does, particularly in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I give you thanks for all your blessings and your love toward us and pray that you would be with us and help us to learn more about you and to bring others to you. All for the glory of of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.